Imagine you live in a country where you can be arrested and convicted, not because of something you've done, but rather who people perceive you are. This is not a dystopian novel. This was the legal reality in the United States for hundreds of years under vagrancy laws. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today my guest is Risa Golubov, who is a history and law professor at the University of Virginia and, come July, will be the dean of the School of Law. She has written a book called Vagrant Nation, Police Power, Constitutional Change, and the Making of the 1960s. Risa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Lee. So I did not appreciate, before reading your book, what a vast range of activities were covered under these vagrancy laws. I have to admit, I had seen signs saying, no loitering, no vagrancy. And I assumed, oh, well, some sort of vagrancy law. That's what that is. Could you explain to us what vagrancy law was and how it was used and enforced until the Supreme Court overthrew it? Of course. So vagrancy laws came to the United States, actually the colonies, from medieval and Elizabethan England. And once they got to the colonies and then later the states, they proliferated everywhere. And these laws originated in the idea that everyone who could work should, and that being poor and not working was a criminal offense. So the original justification for vagrancy laws was a way of localities punishing people who weren't contributing. And so they said it was a crime to be idle and poor. They said it was a crime to wander about with no apparent purpose or to loiter, which is the same thing. And eventually they came to stand for lots and lots of things. So early vagrancy laws in England were in part targeted against the Roma or what were called then gypsies, right? So the laws have things in them about the kinds of activities that the Roma undertook, like juggling or palmistry or plays and acting. And so they had all these different kinds of aspects to them. And they were incredibly vague and incredibly flexible. Because these laws were so flexible, it really is astounding the malleability of how police were able to target various minority populations. And I'm not just talking minority as in African-American or Latino, but anyone who was seen as socially unwelcome or politically unpopular. Could you pull out some examples of the ways that we saw this used in the 20th century alone? Absolutely. So as you say, they were used against minorities of all kinds, partially against racial minorities starting after the Civil War, especially southern states used vagrancy laws against African Americans who were trying to get out of agricultural work, who were trying to move to cities. They were used to really regulate African Americans, make them work in agriculture and sign labor contracts. They were then used into the 20th century against African Americans in both the North and the South, and also especially against against African Americans and their white allies during the Civil Rights Movement. People like the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, who was one of the founders of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference with Martin Luther King, gets arrested for loitering. There are ministers from Montgomery who come to Birmingham to visit Fred Shuttlesworth's wife when he's in jail on another charge in order to help them create a bus boycott in Birmingham like there was in Montgomery. And the ministers get arrested in Fred Shuttlesworth's home while they're eating lunch. And so 
in that sense, the vagrancy laws were very much a political tool used by, in this case, Bull Connor, the infamous sheriff of Birmingham during the civil rights era, against people who he saw as a threat. Bull Connor also used vagrancy laws against communists. He also used vagrancy laws against members of the mafia, Al Capone's kind of southern wing. That happened everywhere. People who were criminals but couldn't be caught for the criminal acts that they were engaged in. So you think tax evasion, right? But in addition to tax evasion, there was vagrancy because one of the things that vagrancy laws said was that you are a vagrant if you have no legitimate means of support. And so police officers would interpret that to mean if you only had illegitimate means of support, if you were in the mafia, if you were a gambler, if you were a prostitute, those were often ways that people got arrested. There were many, many vagrancy laws that made a person a vagrant if they were lewd or immoral or dissolute. And those kinds of laws were often used against gay men and lesbians. They were called vag lewd arrests when those folks would be arrested. The laws were often used against hippies and the beats. So as you can see, many of the people who have social movements in the 1960s are arrested in vagrancy laws, under vagrancy laws before that time. So let's talk about the 1960s. I find it interesting as you said, these laws date back to Elizabethan times, but you chose to focus your book mainly between the times of 1950 and 1970s. What made you make that choice and narrow into that era as your focus for this book? So for 400 years, as you say, these laws are on the books. They're used in every state. They're in all 50 states. They're used by police officers all the time. And the police really think these are necessary adjuncts to law enforcement. They really need them in order to prevent crime, in order to investigate crime. When they can't arrest someone for something like murder, they arrest them for vagrancy, and then they investigate. When they see someone they think is suspicious or out of place, they arrest them for vagrancy. So they use them in the service of crime control. And they also use them in the service of social control, right? So hippies are threatening or civil rights protesters or communists or labor movement organizers. And so those folks get arrested in order to keep social order, not just keep public safety. And what happens in the 1950s and 1960s is that our norms of social order, our norms of pluralism and tolerance begin to change because of the social movements and the legal revolutions of the time. And so the these laws that in the early 1950s everyone thinks are completely legitimate, completely necessary tools of law enforcement. You read treatises, you read cases, and judges say things that these laws are obviously constitutional, and yet by 1971 and 1972, they are unconstitutional. And over the course of that 20 years, they get repealed by legislatures, they stop being used by law enforcement authorities, and lower courts increasingly strike them down. And it's in 1971 and 1972 that the Supreme Court strikes them down. So this is the moment when you can watch a whole bedrock of not only our criminal law, but also our concepts of social order crumble. And that's why I zero in on that moment in time. Now, that seems like, in comparison to many other legal theories, an incredibly short amount of time to have such a seismic shift in our concept of what is constitutional, what is legally acceptable. Who were the attorneys or the activists who were able to fight against these laws and get them overturned and have this shift in the legal idea of what is appropriate and what is not in such a short amount of time? 
over the course of the 1950s and 1960s, literally hundreds of cases get reported. And that means there are even more and more cases that had been not just arrested, but people had challenged their arrests either as a defense to prosecution or in civil rights cases against the governments that were arresting them. And these hundreds of cases happen all across the country. So when I first started writing this book, I asked this question that you asked, right, who did this? Who made this happen? And I had this image in my head that there had to be a Thurgood Marshall. There had to be an NAACP legal defense fund out there orchestrating this campaign that led to the invalidation of vagrancy laws. And what I realized was there wasn't really a centralized campaign. The fact was that all of a sudden, because of all the social movements of the 1960s, because of the Warren Court criminal procedure revolution, because of the Warren Court civil rights cases and other cases, First Amendment cases, all of a sudden, lawyers everywhere were encountering vagrancy arrests and saying, to themselves, this doesn't look right to me. This looks unconstitutional to me. I think I have a winning case here. And that was happening in the context of civil rights protesters, hippies, communists, labor organizers, criminal defendants, prostitutes, drug addicts, gay men and lesbians, all across the spectrum in different fact situations with people raising different kinds of constitutional claims. So some people said, this violates my First Amendment rights. Other people talked about fundamental rights and substantive due process. Other people talked about equal protection claims, either because they were poor or because they were African-American or because they were hippies. And so all of a sudden, all across the country, people are saying, I'm engaged in a process of challenging the status quo, but if I can't walk out of my door or actually even be in my home and be who I am without being subject to arrest at any time, then how am I ever going to vindicate my other rights? I need to really attack these laws. And so you had lawyers, some of whom were affiliated with various ACLU affiliates, various NAACP chapters, but it wasn't coordinated from the center. It was people on the periphery all over the country reaching out to national organizations to help them coordinate, network, gain information. But it was because this was such a huge widespread problem that so many lawyers saw it as a legal opportunity. There's something very poetic in the fact that this wide-ranging tool and this incredible weapon, which had so many uses, was eventually brought down because of that. And it died by the death of a thousand cuts because it was so widely used. It was so widely attacked. I just found that really kind of inspiring and stunning and a little bit touching. Um, You mentioned the cases of several individuals and their stories. I really was struck by the case of Sam Thompson, Mm -hmm. because this is a man who literally could not leave town because every time he went to the bus station, he got arrested for vagrancy. And you saw that, you know, he had a very complicated life. He was indeed quite poor. And his attorney, one of the big things he faced was most of these vagrancy charges, most of the penalties were fines that were underneath some limit that you'd need to have in order to appeal or jail sentences that were so short that by the time you would be able to bring your client's case before a higher court, their jail time would have already been served. Can you talk about how lawyers managed to get around this and how lawyers managed to support themselves when obviously these are not big dollar amounts that you're trying to win or you can't expect many poor or outcast people to have great financial resources? How are the lawyers themselves who are fighting these really making a living? 
Yes. One of the things that really drew me to this project was the people. And as important as the lawyers were in bringing the cases, and I think they're crucial to how constitutional law changes generally, and especially in in this story, how constitutional law changes. But as important as the lawyers are, I always come back to the people like Sam Thompson, who there aren't cases unless he's willing to fight. And, you know, Sam Thompson, 1950s, Louisville, Kentucky, African-American man, as you say, very poor, an alcoholic. He doesn't really have a job. He's a handyman one day a week for someone, which is how he makes his money enough to live on. And he is arrested all the time by the police. And that's just his life, right? He's just accustomed to that. But one day he gets arrested by the police when he's asked them for help. And I think that he thinks to himself, that wasn't right. I was hurt. I needed help. And you arrested me. And that's when he decides that it's not okay anymore. And he, luckily for him, the person who he's a handyman for is a member of the Kentucky ACLU board. And he goes to him and he complains to him. And that gentleman puts him in touch with a man named Louis Lusky, who is a really illustrious lawyer. He was a Supreme Court law clerk. He was a star student. And he moved back to Louisville, where he was from, from the Northeast. And he is also a founding member of the ACLU in Kentucky and Louisville. And he takes Sam Thompson's case. And, you know, in part, he gets support from the ACLU, from the Kentucky ACLU and from the National ACLU. And that's how lawyers make this happen. But to Sam Thompson and Louis Lusky, part of the reason Sam Thompson continues to get arrested is because the police are affronted by the fact that they've brought this case. You know, Sam Thompson goes to the police court. The police court is a place where a few lawyers go. People are summarily convicted of crimes. It's a very quick process. There's no transcripts. There are no lawyers. There's very little process. And Sam Thompson shows up with Louis Lusky, who is this amazing lawyer who starts making constitutional arguments. And after that, the police really go after him. And he really can't walk around Louisville without being arrested. And eventually, he gets arrested at a bar, a black bar called the Liberty End Cafe, because it's at the end of Liberty Street, which just, you know, for an author to figure out that he lost <laughs> his liberty at the Liberty End Cafe is quite something. And so it really is, you know, Sam Thompson's willingness to say, I won't do this anymore, that gives Louis Lusky the opportunity then to challenge these laws. Um, but the flip side of that, and you're right to point out, you know, well, we're, how do the lawyers get paid and where does that come from? The flip side of that is, I do think that part of why these cases come about when they do is because lawyers are now available for poor people. Starting in the 1960s, you get Gideon versus Wainwright and the requirement under the Sixth Amendment that indigent criminal defendants be provided counsel. Now, obviously, that's for, you know, major crimes, but it trickles down and more and more poor defendants do get access to criminal defense attorneys as part of the war on poverty under Lyndon B. Johnson. He creates the Legal Services Corporation, which creates local legal aids all across the country, providing additional legal support in civil cases for poor people. In addition, ACLU affiliates are growing in this period. The ACLU nationally is growing. The NAACP and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund are growing. And so suddenly there are lawyers available who can find funding and who are being trained into a mindset and a way of thinking about the Constitution that it is there to protect everyone, not just powerful people, but marginal people and people who had previously seemed incredibly powerless under the law. Now, the powerful people, the police, the local governments, prosecutors, 
all of them had a very vested interest in the use of these laws. As you said, it was an incredibly useful tool for them. After the Supreme Court decided that these were no longer acceptable laws, what ended up happening? What were the successors to these laws and what impact do we see today? What kind of examples of laws basically allow you to accomplish similar things? So even before the Supreme Court spoke about vagrancy laws, lower courts were invalidating them for some time. And California, for example, repealed its traditional vagrancy law in 1962. It was an early mover, but replaced it with a disorderly conduct law. So one of the things that happens even before the Supreme Court speaks is that states and local governments start to say, don't use those laws. They're constitutionally suspect. Instead, you should use disorderly conduct or breach of the peace laws. And you might say, well, what's the difference? Well, one of the big differences is that vagrancy laws are status crimes. What vagrancy laws say is that a person who is a habitual drunkard or immoral or wandering about with no apparent purpose or a prostitute or a night walker or an idle person is a vagrant. And once they are a vagrant, they are always a vagrant. And most other American laws are laws of conduct. You do something and then you get convicted of doing that thing. And so one of the big moves that happens is the police say, okay, don't use vagrancy laws anymore. Use conduct-based laws instead. And they move toward that. They also start to defend vagrancy laws and loitering laws on the basis of the need for law enforcement control, much more so than social control. So they say, okay, fine, we understand we shouldn't be arresting hippies just for being hippies, but we still need some kind of reservoir of legal authority in order to arrest people who seem suspicious, but about whom we do not have probable cause. And so they start to pass suspicious loitering laws, which make it a crime to loiter so as to cause suspicion or raise alarm, as well as loitering laws, loitering for the purposes of prostitution or loitering for the purposes of narcotics traffic, so that they tie the loitering to some more criminal activity. So that's one piece of it. Another piece, obviously, is that vagrancy laws were used against homeless people, you know, people on Skid Row, people like Sam Thompson, who wasn't actually homeless, but I think was seen in a similar light to homeless people. And so I think the new generation of panhandling laws, aggressive panhandling laws, laws against sleeping in public or sleeping on sidewalks or sleeping in parks, those were all efforts to target one of the major populations that had been targeted through vagrancy laws. One of the tricky parts of writing this book was to figure out how to talk about what changes and what stays the same. And I think your question really gets at this because I think that vagrancy law's downfall was a crucial and important moment for American law and American history. I think these laws were everywhere and they gave police really virtually unchecked discretion. And so I think that it was a turning point and a really important turning point that they become unconstitutional. But at the same time, it doesn't end, as you suggest, the police need or perceived need for uh, reservoirs of authority and discretion, and it doesn't end the conflict that existed between claims of individual liberty and freedom and claims of police need for order and security. And so I think it makes the police have to work harder. It requires more transparent laws when 
vagrancy laws were on the books, a new group who came about who seemed to be threatening. The police didn't have to ask for any new authority. They just turned the vagrancy laws to the new group. Now, if you want to address a homeless problem in a particular city, you have to pass a law, and then advocates are going to come out, and they're going to say, we don't like that law, and you're going to have a debate about that law. And it's not that you don't end up with some repressive authority against homeless people, which may be for the good and maybe for the ill, but it is something that is much more apparent to many more people and enables a much more democratic discussion and practice. It also requires a lot more guidance to the discretion that the police use. You mentioned in your book something called Terry Stops. Could you explain a little bit about that to our listeners? Sure. So in 1968, the Supreme Court heard a case called Terry versus Ohio. And the question in the case was whether the police would be able to stop and frisk people on less than probable cause. So you need probable cause in order to search and arrest someone. And the question was, would you need a lesser quantum of proof in order to merely stop and frisk them rather than search and arrest them? And the court said that was okay. And that licensed what we know today as stop and frisks, which are often called Terry stops. And one of the fascinating things about this story is that in that same 1967 Supreme Court term, the court was also asking itself, should we strike down vagrancy laws? And the lawyers and the litigants and the justices and other judges and the media all understood that vagrancy laws and Terry stops both provided police officers with additional means to exercise discretion against people they found suspicious but who had not actually committed crimes or they didn't have probable cause to prove that they had committed crimes. And the court is really thinking about which of these two methods of controlling crime would be the least liberty suppressing and the most effective. And in 1968, they actually leave vagrancy laws intact and give Terry power. So the police and 1968, which is a year of, you know, assassinations and riots and rising crime rates, and the court is really on the defensive at that moment. So they leave 1968 with more power than they'd started. And it's a real setback for the anti-vagrancy law forces. But eventually in 1971 and 1972, when they revisit the vagrancy question, they say to themselves, well, now that we've given Terry power, we can take away vagrancy laws. And so Terry comes to shore up a lot of the police discretion that the police lost with vagrancy laws. So, Risa, after tackling a subject like this, which is so vast, do you have any plans for what your next research topic is going to be? That's a great question. I have some ideas. Uh, One of the things that I'm interested in, and it comes across in this book, is the relationship between lawyers and clients and the role that regular people play in pursuing legal change. And one of the groups that I'm really interested in is lay people who act as lawyers in certain circumstances. So I'm curious about jailhouse lawyers, prisoners who represent themselves and others in prison. They're often seen as litigious and negative influences, but they're also people who learn the law on their own and try to figure out how to use the law for better or for worse. There are also people called sea lawyers who were people on board ships who were self-taught lawyers who were also seen as pretty pesky, but were also quite adamant that they understood their rights and they wanted to pursue them or pursue other people's rights. And there were people in the military called barracks lawyers who played a similar role. And so I'm curious about looking into regular people who learn the law, understand the law to be, and what roles they play in creating legal change or in impeding legal change for that matter. 
Well, I, for one, will be looking forward to that. Risa, thank you so much for joining us. Your book, Vagrant Nation, Police Power, Constitutional Change, and the Making of the 1960s is currently available. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. Thank you, Lee. It's been a pleasure.